Hello, and welcome to Controversies in Church History. This is the podcast that takes you into controversial topics in the history of the Roman Catholic Church, the Catholic Communion with Rome. Uh, my name is Derek Taylor. I am your host for this podcast. And on this episode, we have a special topic for you. The topic for this time, this episode, is the Union of Brest and the Ukrainian Catholic Church. Now, you're probably asking yourself, what, what's the Union of Brest? What's that? But the word Ukrainian probably hits your ears because, of course, we have a crisis going on in the country called Ukraine uh, currently in the world. Ukraine has been invaded by Russia. And part of my reasoning for doing this, this episode is because of that. Partly is because I have good friends who are part of the Ukrainian Catholic Church. And this episode, we're going to talk about the Ukrainian Catholic Church. It comes out of the Union of Brest and talk about where it comes from, what its important is, importance is, uh, but partly because of, uh, uh, you know, uh, my friends in that wonderful church and because of what's going on. I'll give you a little background on that stuff. But also, it's a controversial topic, as you'll see, for obvious reasons. It'll become obvious in a second uh, in the history of the Catholic Church. Because we're talking about Catholic Church, we usually mean Roman Catholic Church, but the Ukrainian Catholic Church is a, to get you uh, to start out here, uh, is a Catholic Church that is in communion with the Bishop of Rome, but is a uh, an Eastern Church. It has a Byzantine liturgy, a Byzantine ritual that descends from Constantinople. It has basically the same sorts of liturgy, liturgical, and ritual uh, adornments that the Orthodox churches have. How did it get in communion with Rome? This is what this episode's about. Before I start, before I get into this and too much further, one last thing. If you want to contribute to um, helping the Ukrainian people in this hour when they're being attacked um, by a uh, by Russia, um, please uh, find a place to donate to that will actually get money <laughs> to the Ukrainians themselves. Uh, I just donated money uh, through one of the, you can donate through some of the, uh, they're called eparchies, they're it's basically the same word for bishopric, but the or diocese. Uh, you can donate through one of the Ukrainian Catholic uh, eparchies. You might go through one of the Orthodox churches to try to donate uh, money there. Uh, it will get to people who need it. I donated money through the um, the Ukrainian Catholic eparchy of Philadelphia. They have a little web, have a little donation button on their website where you can donate money specifically to that cause. Which, the, by the way, it'll go to all the people in Ukraine, as you're going to see. Most of the people in Ukraine, as we'll get to in a moment, are not actually. Ukrainian Catholics, they're Orthodox, but we'll explain the distinction, get to that in a second, so, but I'm going to let you know if you want to do that, you can do that there. Okay, let's let's step back for a second. I assume most of my audience is Anglophone, probably American, so let me explain who the Ukrainians are. Just a little quick background here. They are an Eastern Slavic people. Um, Eastern Slavs are usually grouped with Russians, the Ukrainians usually grouped with Russians, Belarusians as the Eastern Slavs, as opposed to Western Slavic peoples. This, by the way, will help a lot if you have a map in front of you. If you're going to listen to this on YouTube, I will have maps <laughs> on there for you. You can see some of this, but it would help to have a map out. Uh, Western Slavs are people like Poles, Czechs, Slovaks, countries in the more westerly part of, easterly part of Western Europe, or Southern Slavic peoples, Serbs, Croats, Macedonians, Bulgarians, Slovenes, and the like. So they are Eastern Slavic peoples, farther east. And Ukrainians are descended from Slavic peoples that inhabited the region around the Dnieper River 
um, in Ukraine, what is today Ukraine, from the 7th century A.D. Today, the state of Ukraine encompasses a, a, a relatively diverse population, I say relatively, uh, but it has uh, a majority of, uh, of Ukrainian speakers in terms of its languages. It also has a large minority of Russian speakers, uh, ethnic Russians, I should, uh, I should mention. Uh, with a bunch of other minorities, smaller minorities, uh, ethnic minorities like Romanians, Hungarians, Moldovans, those sorts of different uh, peoples. But I think 70% of its population uh, is Russian, ethnically speaking, uh, which is a big number. And then finally, just to, just to clarify about language here, because if you're an Anglo, if you're an Anglophone speaker, it knows nothing about Slavic languages. The Ukrainians, the Russians, and the Belarusians. Uh, all have their own languages. They're related, but they're distinct. Again, you couldn't tell the difference one way or the other. Um, I've actually heard friends. <laughs> one was a Ukrainian speaker, a Belarusian speaker speaking, and I could not tell the difference between them. But they're all separate languages. They originally came from a colloquial dialect um, in the Middle Ages. But by the early modern period, the period we're going to talk about here, the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries, they are different languages. So the Ukrainian people are a separate people with a separate language from the Russians. Now, the Ukrainian Catholic Church is a, as I mentioned before, a Byzantine Rite Church that is in communion with the, with the Bishop of Rome, with the Pope. And its uh, liturgy, as, as I said before, derived from that was based on the city of Constantinople, coming out of the ancient world. Um, and um, its primary language is Church Slavonic. It was translated into that language in the Middle Ages. Although today, vernacular languages are also used outside of uh, Ukraine and places like that. And the Ukrainian Catholic Church is also what is known within the, the Catholic Church as a, as a sui juris church. What this means is that it is a self-governing local church, uh, subject of the universal jurisdiction of the Pope, obviously. This means that, and there are 23 of these, by the way, 23... Um, sui juris churches in communion with Rome that make up the Catholic Church. Just the, the Roman Catholic Church is generally Latin. That's the Latin rite. Churches are defined, at least non-Protestant ones, by their rites, by the language in which they worship, the ritual they have. And um, these uh, sui juris churches, uh, two things. One is that they are able to they preserve their liturgical and spiritual heritage in their own languages. They don't worship in Latin or a translation, because if you're, if you're a, a, a Latin rite worshiper in the United States, you're worshiping according to a translation of an original text, which is in Latin, because you are part of the Latin rite. Uh, and um, it also means that essentially, again, I've already said that the sui juris churches are generally self-governing. Uh, the Ukrainian Catholic Church elects its, elects its own primates. Um, again, it has to be signed off on Rome, but they basically go along whatever they want. Um, they're essentially um, semi-autonomous local churches. And the uh, Ukrainian Catholic Church is perhaps the most important of them all, with one other possibility, uh, partly because it's the biggest. Uh, there are five and a half million members of the Ukrainian Catholic Church uh, worldwide. Uh, has, I believe, something like uh, a um, hierarchy in four different countries outside of Ukraine. So it's, it's really widespread uh, because of the Ukrainian diaspora. Why is it important? A couple of reasons. Um, well, just in a nutshell, it came into communion with Rome, did the Ukrainian Catholic Church, in 1596, when the Union of Brest was proclaimed between Rome and some bishops and clergy and a few people of, the, of uh, 
what had been part of the Orthodox Church in Ukraine. And therefore, it's one of the first local churches to enter communion with Rome following the Great Schism, the Schism of 1054, and uh, both the longevity and I would say the general success of this uh, uniting with Rome make it important for today. Um, it's also, as we'll see in a moment, it's controversial uh, to the Orthodox, but uh, it's important for that reason. One other thing to note about this is that today in the Ukraine, for several years now, maybe several decades, there are uh, the Ukrainian Catholic Church is a minority uh, in the uh, in Ukraine itself. There, most of the people in Ukraine are, are Orthodox, and there are two major separate Orthodox churches in Ukraine. One is the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, which is in communion with the Patriarch of Moscow, so it's in communion with the the Orthodox Church of Moscow. While the other is the Orthodox Church uh, Kievan Patriarchate. That is, basically, it's an independent or autonomous Orthodox Church, which is uh, autonomous from Moscow. It's under the, the Patriarch of Constantinople. And this has actually been the subject of a schism between the Patriarchs, the Orthodox Patriarchs of Moscow, and Constantinople. In this situation, the uh, Ukrainian Catholic Church has actually had pretty good relations with both Orthodox churches in Ukraine, and its leader, Bishop Sviatoslav Shevchuk, is respected by pretty much everybody. Um, I can generally say he's probably one of the the best Catholic bishops still left in Europe. Um, so uh, he's an energetic, young, very pastoral, very good pastor of the Ukrainian, Orthodox, uh, Ukrainian Catholic Church. The other reason, of course, this is important and this is controversial is the so-called unia problem. Uh, one of the major divisions, of course, between uh, Church of Rome, Roman Catholicism, however you want to call it, and the Orthodox world is the issue of Rome's claim to universal jurisdiction over all the churches. And the term unia is often applied by the Orthodox to those Orthodox churches that have entered in communion with Rome, the idea being that they have basically sacrificed their heritage and their autonomy and been swallowed up by the Latin church. And... Um, the Ukrainian Catholic Church, as we're going to, as I'll talk about a little bit here today, has suffered a lot uh, to retain and to remain in communion with Rome, but has also kept its liturgical and spiritual heritage intact. Um, and in that regard, again, it's it's controversial because it represents, in practice, Rome's claim to primacy in the Universal Church, and so that's one of the reasons for this. The other reason for this this episode, as I mentioned before, I'm going to talk about this. Uh, the the um, the Union of Brest, as we're going to see, is integral not just to the creation of, you know, uh, Ukrainian Catholic Church and therefore a split within the church, generally speaking, in Ukraine. It's it's foundational in some ways because it's part of a process whereby Ukraine comes into its modern form, which is controversial in and of itself. So lots of controversies everywhere. So. Um, Let's get into this. Let me just talk a little briefly about the origins of the Ukrainian church. And I have to talk about the origins of Ukraine here. Again, this will help if you have a map um, to know where all this stuff is at. But um, you probably do know at this point, you probably heard the, the name Kiev. Well, the um, the beginnings of what Ukraine, uh, what was become Ukraine is sometimes called Kievan Rus. The reason why is that in 882, year 882 AD, a Scandinavian tribe called the Rus became dominant in Kiev, and their descendants would come to rule the area around it. 
And it formed a state made up of a loose confederation of Slavic and other types of peoples. So it's, it's a state of, of a sort, of a medieval kind, uh, with lots of different peoples within it. And again, there's at this point no identifiable Ukrainian people. There will be. And according to the earliest chronicles we have, this is still a matter of debate to a certain degree, but um, what happens is that the leader of uh, Kievan Rus, um, and this is, <laughs> this is how uh, divided things get, I believe, I'm going to butcher this, Volodymyr, Volodymyr, Volodymyr uh, is the Ukrainian name for the prince of Kiev who converts uh, to Christianity in 980. He's uh, called Vladimir in Russia. And um, in any event, uh, he embraces Christianity in 980, the Christianity of the Church of Constantinople, emissaries from Constantinople, and he embraces, the, embraces baptism from them. And therefore, again, they embrace the Byzantine liturgy, theology, spirituality, which characterizes um, all, your, all those Ukrainian churches till today. In the 11th to 12th centuries, um, the um, um, Kievan Rus flourished. It was kind of its golden age. Kiev, the city itself, on the Dnieper River there in Central Europe, uh, Eastern Central Europe, became sort of the, the hub of culture in Eastern Europe for a long time in the Christian, era, Christian um, lands. And eventually they were actually given a metropolitan bishop. Um, and the reason why they wanted a metropolitan bishop from Constantinople is because it gave them greater autonomy, prestige. And so in 1008, the first metropolitan was elected. And um, in any event, uh, I should also mention that in the 11th century, there was a, of course, dated this way, a schism between Rome and Constantinople. Um, Bishop of Rome's emissaries excommunicated the uh, Patriarch Constantinople and vice versa. However, this did not break off relationships between Rome and Kiev, not immediately, um, uh, for a variety of reasons. Partly because they were starting to be attacked in the 11th and 12th centuries by people of the Tatars. And then later on in the 13th century, the Mongols. And in fact, it's the Mongols who will attack and destroy Kievan Rus. Um, they'll conquer Kiev in 1240, effectively ending the old Kievan uh, Rus state. And this will lead to greater contact with Rome. Um, they're looking for allies in the fight against these uh, peoples from the steppe coming in and uh, fighting with them. And this actually, this Mongol conquest, they'll conquer both um, um, all parts of it. But there'll be a couple of sort of principalities uh, that survive as vassal states of the Mongols. One called uh, Vladimir Suzdal, I think is the name of it. It's called Vladimir for short. That's the forerunner of Moscow, of Russia. And then Galicia uh, Volnia, which is the forerunner of the Western Ukraine as it exists today. Um, but there was still a metropolitan of Kiev, and the metropolitan of Kiev in 1245 uh, attended the first Council of Lyon, which was a reunion council. It was held to try to um, heal the schism between you know, Constantinople and Rome. And in fact, in 1253, uh, Prince Danilo, or Daniel of Galicia, was crowned by a papal legate as, quote, King of the Ruthenians. And I have to explain that term, Ruthenians. Ruthenians is a Latin term for basically all the Eastern Slavs. So this is all confusing. <laughs> you kind of refer to Russians, Ukrainians, and Belarusians as Ruthenians. It's confusing, I know. But that's where that term comes from, because we'll have to come back to it for a variety of reasons. Now, what happens is the... Um, um, the uh, those two princedoms are still vassal states 
of, uh, of the Mongols in the 13th century. What happens in the 14th century is that Galicia, that western province of what used to be the Kievan Rus, their prince dies without an heir, and it will be successfully absorbed by the Polish kingdom, the kingdom of Poland in 1349. Later on, there'll be a dynastic union, as you'll see, uh, which will f- affect this further. But this is going to bring a serious change. Because what's going to happen is Poland is a Catholic kingdom, a Latin, you know, Roman Catholic kingdom. And it's going to bring with it this absorption by the Polish, increasing efforts by the Latin Rite Church to reconcile what they call, quote, call the schismatic Ruthenians. Uh, schismatic because they've, you know, they've, um, they've, their mind, they're, they're, they're the Orthodox with the cause of the schism. And because um, the Orthodox, generally speaking, have denied certain you know, they denied papal jurisdiction, they denied their other issues, the filioque. Um, and this meant a really aggressive uh, proselytization attempt uh, at times, not always, but at times, by the Polish state. This uh, means, for example, ejecting Orthodox hierarchy from areas under Polish control. Other times it meant rebaptizing Orthodox when they came into the Latin communion with Rome, uh, effectively trying to sort of make them become Latin Rite uh, Catholics. Uh, and this was done sometimes with explicit instructions from Rome occasionally, although more often it was the initiative of Polish kings who had po- uh, political and religious motives in mind. So you have this drive to, in some ways almost, if not forcibly, then at least with a lot of pressure, reunite these people with the communion of Rome, which I have to stress this, in the Middle Ages, you're growing up after Vatican II, in the Middle Ages, the, the Latin Church thought it was the, you know, that there was only one, I'm not, saying not only one way, but like they were a lot more aggressive about this in terms of saying that Rome was the, you know, the head of all the churches. There was a, a powerful feeling among a lot of Latins that that meant you had to become a Latin Rite worshiper, a worshiper in the Latin Rite with the Latin liturgy. And that's part of what's behind this. And this exorption into the Polish state of that part of Ukraine, of, of old Kievan Rus, um, is going to exacerbate tensions with the Byzantine church in Constantinople. Kiev was under the uh, patriarch of uh, Constantinople, of course, in the uh, 14th uh, and 15th centuries. The Byzantine Empire faced growing threats. Its territory was shrinking, mostly from the Ottoman Empire, Turkish Empire. And as a result, the Byzantines transferred the metropolitanate uh, of, from Kiev to Moscow, partly for monetary reasons. Moscow was outside of, well, they're outside of Ottoman control, and they could provide them with you know, funds. Uh, and plus, also, Constantinople wanted to keep the metro- one metropolitan for all the peoples of the Rus, all the um, Slavic peoples in one place, for theological reasons. The reason why is they didn't want to grant every new country outside of the empire uh, autonomous status. Why? Because their ideal was an ecumenical church overseen by the Patriarch of Constantinople, uh, not a group of, not a, a collection of national churches. So this is going to be a source of tension going forward. Then in 1385, um, I mentioned this earlier, but um, Poland will enter a dynastic union with the, at that point, pagan kingdom of Lithuania, Lithuanian prince converts to Catholicism. This adds another layer of complication to the situation. Lithuania had been a pagan kingdom, but it contained a presence of Orthodox churches there. Poor relationships with Moscow, the Moscow Patriarchate, and the Moscow, um, you know, princedom or whatever it was, 
And the allure of dynastic union with Poland, which was much more powerful at that point, pushed them in the Roman camp. Uh, and this, in fact, strengthened the role of Moscow because in the face of Latin pressures, both from politically and religiously, it became the rallying point for the Orthodox in the regions of Lithuania. And so you have divisions open between the Orthodox in Poland-Lithuania and those in Muscovy for a variety of reasons. Muscovy is another name for the, the, the state that emerges out of Moscow in that period. Sorry for all these different names, but it's confusing. That's because it is. So how does the reunion come about? We're kind of getting into the 15th and 16th centuries. How do we get there? One thing we have to mention here is that in the 1430s, there was another attempt to reunify the Orthodox world with uh, the Catholic one, with Rome. And that is the Council of Florence, um, met in 1438 and 39, Florence Ferrara, or Ferrara Florence, however you want to put it, uh, in which they, the um, delegates from Constantinople, the Patriarch of Constantinople, the Byzantine Emperor at the time, came together, met with representatives of the Latin Church, the Pope, in Florence, and they signed a decree of union. They actually hammered out an agreement. Everybody agreed on it, except for one person, basically, in the... Uh, in the um, uh, the Byzantine entourage said no to all this, but it was agreed upon. Agreed upon. They proclaimed it in Florence. Uh, it didn't work, and it didn't work because as soon as they got back to Constantinople, did the Byzantine delegation, the emperor, the patriarch, and all the all of the um, other uh, bishops and prelates, the people in Constantinople just flat out rejected it. Didn't want anything to do with a union with Rome, you know. Crusaders had sacked the city of, of Constantinople in 1204. Um, it was a no-go. They didn't bother to try to sell it to their people, uh, and therefore, it, basically, they, they basically reneged on what they agreed on, essentially, and had no choice to do so. Uh, but this did have an effect in Ukraine, because after this, the uh, cities of Moscow and Kiev get uh, separated into separate metropolitan seas permanently. Uh, Kiev is, is raised in the metropolitan alongside Moscow. And again, I mentioned that further here because you're wondering why there's rivalry between, you know, Russians and Ukrainians. Well, they're, they're, first of all, they're so close. <laughs> it's just natural rivalry there. But you also have at this point Moscow rising to prominence both politically and religiously. Uh, and then I've already mentioned that it's, it's become the, the focal point for people who are dissatisfied with, you know, pressures against orthodoxy in Catholic lands. Uh, in the 15th and then the 16th centuries, uh, Moscow will challenge the Tatars, the people that are ruling over their their um, their kingdom, um, nominally anyway, and eventually throw them off in the 16th century. So they'll become the big, the biggest independent Orthodox state by the 16th century. So they're very important for political reasons. Meanwhile, as you get into the end of the 15th, uh, end of the uh, end of the 16th century, and I should mention, by the way. Uh, no prelates came from um, any of uh, from uh, Ukraine or from Kiev or any of those areas to attend the Council of Florence. It was all basically, well, there was one person, Isidore of Kiev, who was who was elected the Metropolitan of Kiev, but he was actually from Greece. I uh, never set foot in Kiev actually as as um, Metropolitan, and he was imprisoned by the by the Russians when he got to Moscow and fled to the West afterwards. So there wasn't a lot of participation in this. There was. There was some attempt to uh, to um, to implement this. It didn't work out in the late 15th century. 
But as you get in the 15th and 16th century, the Church of Kiev, um, the Church in Kiev, in, in what is today Ukraine, had to operate under very difficult conditions in Poland and Lithuania. Because despite the fact that the Polish kings granted them, granted the, the Orthodox clergy their equal status with, in law with Latin Rite clergy, um, they still suffered under a lot of discrimination, as a lot of these were none of these were enforced, and some of them weren't even enforceable. Some of these laws they passed, uh, and one of the reasons was in the 16th century, the kings of Poland began to directly appoint bishops of the Orthodox Church in their territories. You're wondering why they did this. This is the age, of course, of the Reformation, of the rise of confessional states, in which you know you're supposed to have one religion, one for one state. And so, uh, you know, rulers had a lot of say over religious bodies that weren't their own. Uh, in fact, this happened, by the way, in the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman sultans not only um, not only appointed patriarchs of Constantinople, they removed them and put them back and forth constantly. So that was a source of, pro of a problem, too. They didn't know who they were talking to sometimes in Constantinople in Ukraine. But they also suffered from this because of... Uh, this in Poland, not because the kings of Poland were that arbitrary, but because they would often appoint men of little or no integrity or competence to important positions in the church. They would, in fact, appoint laymen to positions of, of Episcopal authority. They'd have to be consecrated, of course, ordained and consecrated. And this meant that they, were, they had little interest in church affairs, and it was badly, badly run. Monastic life also suffered, especially when you compare them to the Russian monastic uh, life, which was flourishing at the time in the 16th century. Um, the general population remained faithful to their heritage uh, in Ukraine, but the hierarchy went down the tubes, essentially, is the best way to put it. At the same time, you have the pressures, you have pressures associated with the Reformation at the same time. In the uh, 1560s, the Council of Trent, of course, wraps up, and this actually had <laughs> one good outcome anyway for the for the uh, Orthodox there. Uh, the Council of Trent went back and forbade the rebaptizing of the Orthodox. Why? Because, well, they're already baptized, and that was totally against the early canons of church law, which they'd kind of forgotten, and that Trent basically sort of revived. Um, and so this is one of the things that ended here. But it also gave an impetus to reform in Poland. Reform of the Church, the Catholic, the Roman Catholic Church, uh, in which religious orders played a great role, especially that of the Jesuits, who would play a crucial role in Polish society during this period, in the period of the Reformation, the Renaissance, and the Baroque era as well. All this is, they play a big role in that. At the same time this is going on in the 1560s, you have an effort on the part of um, political elites in um, in Poland and Lithuania to form a new union um, the prince of last prince the king of Poland dies with an heir and so in 1569 the nobility of of, um, of Lithuania and Poland signs a political union a political union forming the political forming the Pol the uh, Commonwealth of Poland Lithuania which granted equal privileges to Catholic and Orthodox nobles alike and for several decades they actually enforced this in the long run when this would be curbed in favor of Catholics but for a time it did make for a greater degree of equality 
the this union also granted equal legal status to again I'll call it I'll call it Ruthenian or or, or call it orthodox liturgical and language, language linguistic customs, but it also divided up the Slavic peoples by territories, and this helped cement the differences between those Slavic peoples in their territories, namely Ukrainians and Belarusians. Uh, and so you're beginning to, it's, it actually begins to sort of shape the modern territory of Ukraine. And it also brought an end to any possibility of an independent Ukrainian state, as had existed in the Middle Ages, like Kiev and Rus. Although the Ukrainian nobility never seemed to express any regrets about this. In fact, some of these Ukrainian nobility uh, increased their land holdings greatly as a result of the Union. And one in particular, we'll come back to him, a guy named Basil Konstantin Ostrovsky, uh, who was the greatest landholder in the realm, um, would play a very crucial role in the Union of Brest. At the same time, one of the things that's happening is under the influence of this um, Latin Catholic reform, under the influence of Renaissance and Baroque Polish culture, a lot of Orthodox elites begin to embrace Rome, encouraged by really aggressive proselytizing efforts um, by the Jesuits, but also of papal nuncios. And so you're having this uh, this aggressive push to to make them into Latin Rite Catholics. And in particular, by the way, this is a cultural thing as much as anything. Polish culture is a lot more attractive. It's more it's more intellectual. It's more sophisticated. And this and to embrace that culture means abandoning abandoning Orthodoxy effectively. So you had that pressure on the Orthodox Church in Ukraine. You also, of course, had the influence of Protestantism. Uh, German Protestants, mostly Lutherans, made their way into Poland in the 1520s. And uh, for a variety of reasons, they were tolerated there more, more than anywhere else in Europe. And so Lutherans could be found in a lot of the towns of the Commonwealth, while um, Calvinism found some adherents amongst the, both Slavs and Lithuanians. Most of the common people in, uh, in Poland and Lithuania were, were uh, Orthodox common people were resistant to Protestantism. But if a nobleman embraced, you know, Protestantism, he couldn't try to impose it upon his own, you know, his own clients, as it were. And in general, the Orthodox people within the, the Polish and Catholic realm, Polish and Lithuanian realm, were much less well-educated than their Catholic and Protestant counterparts. And they just struggled to defend them and struggled to defend their own traditions against their polemics. And in fact, what ultimately preserved their faith against these attacks was the attachment of the majority of the faithful were uneducated to their liturgical heritage, to their iconography, to their spirituality. Uh, lay faithful preserved this uh, heritage in organizations called brotherhoods or medovi, which were kind of similar to confraternities in the Catholic world. Lay spiritual associations became crucially important. And we'll have come to come back to this. Brotherhoods play a role in this, this union as well. So, to wit, sum up, by the late 16th century, the Orthodox Church in Poland, Lithuania, which is, again, kind of separate, sort of, it's, it's definitely in a different political and social setting than, than um, Moscow, which, again, to go back there, um, by the late 15th, 16th century, Moscow is independent of, of uh, again, of the Tatar peoples that had conquered them. Uh, and they were, but they were also very closed off from the rest of the world. They thought of Christianity outside of of, of uh, the Third Rome, as they called it, as being sort of corrupt. So they didn't have much contact with the outside world. 
the Orthodox in Poland Lithuania did, and they were feeling the heat because of it, because they were um, um, uh, culturally at a disadvantage. At the same time, this is, gets us on, finally on the road, how we come to this union between some of these Orthodox and Rome itself, is that Rome begins to take a serious interest in the Kingdom of Poland after the Council of Trent ends. Not only because it's a battleground uh, against the Reformation, because the Reformation has support among some of the Polish nobility, but because the papacy had become really concerned about the Ottoman Empire um, by that period. They had made their way to uh, Vienna, early part of the 16th century. They defeated, did a coalition of powers, Catholic powers, in 1571. The Ottomans had a naval battle at Lepanto in 1571. But the papacy was still worried about it, and his the papacy's main concern in this area really was uh, to put together a, a coalition against the Ottomans uh, in the form of a crusade. And I have to say, reading about this stuff <laughs> in the literature, the papacy had some really harebrained schemes <laughs> uh, in uh, which to, to trying to trying to bring this about. One of which was they tried for decades to get an alliance made between Poland and Moscow against the Turks. You know, Moscow in the age of Ivan the Terrible. You know the name. You probably know Ivan the Terrible. Was he a bad guy? He didn't get the name Terrible for a good reason. Ivan the Terrible used to, like, take ambassadors from the West and, like, throw them in the prison, torture them and stuff. <laughs> for some reason, people in Rome didn't get the message. They didn't really want a union. They didn't want anything to do with them. Uh, and the Polish and Lithuanian uh, Polish kings and Lithuanian grand dukes were, of course, horrified at this because they were at war a lot of the time with Muscovy. Uh, and they kept pushing this stuff. And the reason why I'm pointing this out, by the way, is two things. One, Rome was thinking of larger geopolitical stuff. They were thinking in universal terms. They were actually, after the Council of Trent, if you don't know, actually during the Council of Trent, they were trying to trying to go back and sort of recall the Council of Florence and bring all these Orthodox churches in their mind that are all schismatic back into communion with them. Uh, they tried, for example, for several decades after the Council of Trent to, to discuss with the Ethiopian Coptic Church in Egypt, uh, trying to make a deal. Never, nothing happened, but they tried it. So that's what they're thinking. I say this because they didn't have much interest, actually, in what would be today the Ukraine, the Orthodox there. Um, you did have a few people, a few Polish Jesuits who had a, again, a fairly, definitely what in our terms would be totally insensitive <laughs> idea of how to convert the, the heretical schismatic, uh, Ruthenians as they called them to their, to the, back to the true faith. Um, and their works, and they published works about this, but nobody it got nowhere in, in, the, in Ukraine because it was offensive because it basically said all of their rights were her. It, it was a pretty overbearing uh, attempt, the intellectual attempts by these uh, Jesuits. And in fact, um, the initiative eventually comes not from uh, initiative, initial motive for seeking communion with Rome among some of the Orthodox came not from Rome itself, but from Constantinople. Because now the Patriarch of Constantinople uh, was under the control of the Ottoman sultans, as I mentioned before. And they were in constant need, in need of money because the Ottoman sultans taxed them constantly. And so they often relied on the Orthodox churches outside the Ottoman Empire for support. And they would go on their travels through Ukraine, going to Russia, expecting gifts for the support of the Patriarchate. In 1589, 
the uh, patriarch of Constantinople, Jeremiah II, would go to visit Moscow. When he went there, he was expecting to have some gifts. But when he got there, the officials of the Tsar expected him to raise Moscow, the sea, to that of a patriarchate. And again, he needed the money from them, so uh, he did. He turned the Moscow, uh, would have been merely a metropolitanate, into a patriarchal sea. Which, again, made it essentially an independent church, basically. Uh, again, the political and the religious tend to go together here. But on his way back, Jeremiah II also visited the church in Ukraine, and he would intervene in disputes between a bishop and the bishop of, uh, I want to say it's the bishop of Lviv, Lviv, excuse me, and a one of these brotherhoods I mentioned in his city. Uh, they had a dispute about control of a monastery, among some other things. And Jeremiah II intervened on behalf of the brotherhood against the uh, the bishop. He was also paid handsomely by the brotherhood to do, do so. A lot of problems in the church at that point uh, in Ukraine. And this kind of interference, of course, didn't sit well with that bishop or the rest of the bishops. And in fact, this is kind of one of the things they, they've been planning on this uh, already. But they begin to take steps to reform the Orthodox Church in Ukraine. And so in 1590, the bishops in Ukraine held a synod in the city of Brest. And they also agreed there to hold a synod every year on the Feast of St. John the Baptist in the city of Brest. And they considered a number of reforms regarding schools, behavior of the clergy, the laity, etc., etc. However, uh, that was what they were doing publicly. Privately, four bishops signed a letter uh, which they sent to the king of Poland, declaring their intention to seek communion with Rome. And their main intention seems to have been to sort of update the church there in Ukraine. Again, they're thinking of all the people they're losing to Protestants, to the, to the Latin church. And they're worried about this stuff. They're probably also thinking of the machinations of the ecumenical patriarch, because shortly after he got back, Jeremiah II was deposed by the Ottoman Sultan. So they're not sure what's going on there. And the letter they sent explicitly mentions that they are willing to accept the Pope's authority, provided their lights and their liturgy are safeguarded. At the Synod in 1592, no mention was made of uh, plans for union, um, even though they passed some of these reform measures, did these uh, bishops in Ukraine. In 1592, King Sigismund III of Poland issued an official statement that made the desire of those four bishops public and pledged his support for them and promised them they would have equal privileges with the Latin clergy. At this point, you begin to have opposition to the idea of union um, emerging, again, partly from the brotherhoods, these brotherhoods, the Madovi, especially of uh, Lviv, uh, sent a letter to the patriarch in Constantinople telling him that negotiations had already begun and that a papal representative had celebrated Latin liturgies in Ukrainian churches. And again, this is a sore point for them because, again, Catholic rulers have been in, in the uh, habit of taking <laughs> Ukrainian or Orthodox churches and giving them to the Catholics. But there's no evidence there were any negotiations going on before 1594. <laughs> um, so I think maybe they were jumping the gun on that, reporting rumors. The other major force in, uh, of opposition to this union would be the powerful nobleman Konstantin Ostrowski, who initially is favorable to some sort of union, but came to oppose it, maybe because he's got Calvinists at his court. He actually has retainers who are Protestants. Uh, in the event, Protestants and Orthodox will combine to oppose the union in Poland. 
And um, in fact, you're actually going to have, by 1593, there's actually uh, the Greek patriarch of Alexandria uh, from Egypt, the Coptic patriarch, going around Poland trying to dissuade the Orthodox there from union with Rome. So there's opposition from the beginning once this word gets out. And by 1594, it's widely known that they're seeking that some of the, the hierarchy is seeking union with Rome. And the Synod in 1594 in June is lightly attended, uh, and it was still marked by conflict between the Bishop Lviv, which is a city in western Ukraine, and its brotherhood. Um, but in December 1594, the hierarchy met informally and met with the, uh, the Latin Bishop of Luck, which is a I think I'm look. I don't know how to pronounce that. I'm I'm butchering words galore in this this episode. So forgive me if you if I mispronounce things. And three days later, they drew up a document declaring the desire to come into communion with with the Bishop of Rome. Uh, on January 28, 1595, the Bishop of Lviv convened monastic superiors and priests of his eparchy, uh, and they declared themselves for union with Rome. And then by that time, fifteen ninety, by by this time you'd had um, uh, a pope come to come to um, come to authority named uh, Clement the Eighth, Ippolito Aldobrandini is his actual name, but Clement the Eighth, uh, who was um, uh, open to this. Um, and uh, what happened was you had uh, who was pretty much unaware of any of this by until fifteen ninety four, late fifteen ninety four, all these goings on. But uh, two bishops would come to Rome in 1595 and present them with this, this plan for, for union. Um, Clement VIII received it, um, had their proposal looked at by a commission, uh, which uh, agreed that a, Ukraine, a couple of quote-unquote Ruthenian bishops should come to Rome and present their request to the union in person. And so, 1595, um, in June of 1595, the Ruthenian bishops held their next synod, and um, even though it was lightly attended, they agreed on seeking union with Rome, uh, even though there weren't many bishops there. Afterwards, signatures of the entire Ruthenian hierarchy were obtained for the declaration. I mention this because Orthodox critics have accused the bishops uh, of pushing for union with... Um, by circulating blank texts with which they gathered signatures, and then filled it in with then filled it in later with the text of the union, and um, there are actually blank texts preserved uh, in some archives. Apparently, the hierarchy in Ukraine apparently did use blank texts like this to gather signatures. Um, the problem is we can't tell if this is true or not, these accusations, because several of the critics making the accusation actually originally supported the Union in 1595 and only later changed their mind. So it kind of muddles this picture completely. Even though, by the way, as we'll see, most of the hierarchy does, does go along with the Union. Or majority, anyway. And it's at this point that Prince Ostrowski broke with the hierarchy, and this is important because he's so influential. Uh, and he had, I should mention, he had personal reasons to do, for doing so, besides the political. Um, he, uh, he, uh, his, uh, his sons both, con, you know, became, became Latin Rite Catholics. Uh, they came to sort of despise um, the Orthodox Church. And so he didn't want his other, he had another son, didn't want them doing that. And uh, he feared that the union would mean the end of their spiritual and liturgical traditions. Uh, and again, I should mention at this point, there were a lot of people who wanted that. 
uh, in the Roman church at this point. There were Latin clerics in Poland, in Rome, uh, who wanted, you know, that they shouldn't be allowed to have all this stuff. Uh, and uh, they shouldn't be allowed to have these, you know, uh, supposedly heretical rites, right? Uh, in any case, um, Ostrotsky reconciled the Bishop of, Le of Lviv to his brotherhood in Lviv and got him to turn against their union as well. He had been in favor of it initially, got them to change his mind. Ostrowski began calling the Unionist bishop, bishops traitors to Christ's church and the Eastern tradition. He even sent a letter to Protestant leaders boasting of his armed retainers and his uh, willingness to join an Orthodox Protestant alliance against Rome. It didn't come to anything because the Protestants couldn't work with each other. So, But still, <clears throat> a lots of opposition to this. Prior to sending their delegation to Rome, the Unionist bishops in June of 1595 drew up 33 articles that expressed their reason for union. And you can actually find this on the internet. You can go through this in detail. I won't do that here. But basically, they wanted to preserve their spiritual heritage, their liturgy, their language, their customs, and gain equal rights and privileges with the Roman clergy in Poland. Those are the two big things. Preserve your liturgy, preserve your customs, your languages, uh, no more stealing our churches, <laughs> basically. Um, with regards to other items, like the filioque, and this is important here, they accepted the formula drawn up by the Council of Florence. There were people in Rome, even before this, who'd had the idea of resurrecting the sort of basis of the Council of Florence. If you don't know, that was kind of the basic outline of the Council of Florence, is that the Orthodox accepted the, the, the filioque, they accepted Roman primacy, but they kept their own rights, their own autonomy as a church, basically. Um, and finally, the other doctrinal thing they mentioned is they did not see purgatory as controversial and basically accepted the Roman teaching. And so it's pretty clear their, their biggest concern is to keep their liturgical and, and linguistic customs alive. When they went to Rome, uh, they were presented to the Pope. Um, they presented these articles and two theologians from the Curia commented very negatively upon them. They basically, the one, especially, I can't remember his name, I think he was a Spaniard. I mean, it wasn't a Spaniard, I can't remember. But um, he's the one, he basically had that sort of aggressive idea that, no, they needed to convert totally. They didn't have any right to have their own liturgy, all that stuff. Uh, Rome never officially responded to any of these critiques, but they didn't necessarily, in their official documents, respond to the 33 articles either, except in a general way. And when they did get to Rome, the two Ruthenian bishops, the two Ukrainian bishops, Orthodox bishops, they were received by the Pope, who they had several meetings with the Curia, consultations on this or that thing, agreed to receive the bishops into communion. Uh, the Pope, uh, in December, invited, uh, I think this is late December, invited all the bishops of Poland to attend, which basically all of them did. And a letter from the Synod of Brest was allowed, both in Ruthenian and Latin, and then the two bishops made a profession of faith, which included the filioque and acknowledged the Pope's authority. And if you don't know, by the way, this sort of stuff was required in the 16th century. They, they, they kissed his feet. This is, again, it's a sign of submission or whatever to his authority. Um, again, to modern ears, that sounds weird, but that's one of the things they did. Uh, and later that day, the uh, Clement VIII issued Magnus Dominus, a bull, confirming the rites and ceremonies of the Ruthenians, a second document was issued in 1596, uh, Decet Romanum Pontificum, which guaranteed the status of the Metropolitan of Kiev to elect bishops and ordain them with outside recourse. 
except in the case of a metropolitan see, which the Pope had to confirm the election first. Um, I'm trying to remember all the stuff here off the top of my head. Uh, I believe they were they were required to give their assent to the filioque. They did not have to include it in the creed. So basically, they they made the deal. They accept the Pope's authority. You accept the accept the fact that the filioque and the other things purgatory are not heretical, and basically you come into communion with Rome. Keep your church. Keep your liturgy, and they did for the most part satisfy uh, these documents of Rome. The the desires laid out in those thirty three articles, and the Pope treated them well. Um, again, to give you an idea of the tensions within the Church of Rome at this point, they were going to have Vespers at Christmas shortly after the announcement of the Union. And the bishops in the Curia wanted to make the the uh, Ukrainian, now Ukrainian Catholic bishops, wear Latin vestments because they came with, their, they didn't have anything else. They brought their own Ukrainian vestments. And uh, the Pope <clears throat> said, no, they can wear they can wear their own stuff. And you know, treated them well. He allowed them to celebrate Vespers with him, and in fact, he actually um, had them sit right next to him to, to again, to um, indicate his support for them. So, again, this is what's kind of going on here. And so this proclaims the Union. However, they had to take this back to Ukraine, and this is what gets us to the, to the uh, tragic part of this story. Despite some efforts to promote the Union by Latin Rite thinkers, there was already really serious opposition to it by the time the two bishops arrived back in Ukraine. Uh, another synod was called in Ukraine for or October 19, 1596, in which the supporters of the Union, along with Latin representatives of the Pope, met, along with a few Ruthenian noblemen. Uh, five bishops and three Archimandrites uh, attended. Archimandrites, I believe, well, those are different functionaries of, uh, in the Orthodox Church. Meanwhile, a rival council was set up by Ostrowski, which meant at the same time, with two bishops and the superior of the Kievan Lavrov. You know what the Kievan Lavrov is? That's the, that's the oldest Orthodox monastery in, in Ukraine. goes back to the 11th century, still there, still very powerful and influential. And then reps from several confraternities were also there, as well as 22 noblemen at this anti-council, if you want to put it that way. Uh, Ostrowski also brought 200 armed men to protect the Synod. Again, he to get to be fair to him, remember the, he's in a, a officially what they're doing is illegal now because the King of Poland signed off on us too. So, and there were some attempts to reconcile the two parties, but they came to nothing, unfortunately. And so, on the 18th of October, 1596, the Union, uh, the Union Synod of Unionists, proclaimed the Union with Rome. At the same time, the anti-Union Synod excommunicated the Metropolitan of Kiev, um, Michael Rojosa, uh, which excommunication was interrupted by bells ringing, celebrating the, 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 the Union itself. The next day, the Union Synod excommunicated the two bishops of the anti-Union Synod, though nothing ever came and nothing happened. They couldn't enforce it. Uh, the leaders of the opposition appealed to the king, saying they would not ratify any union that would sever its ties with the Eastern Patriarchs. And what happened was, as a result of all this, and long story short, is a divided church emerged in Ukraine. The king only would only recognize the pro-union synod, so the rest of the Orthodox in Ukraine were now was uh, rest of the Orthodox Church in Ukraine was now technically illegal. You have two churches, one in communion with Rome, another one outside of it, and illegal according to the, the laws of Poland at that point. But the vast majority of people remained with the Orthodox; they did not go with the Union. Um, Sigismund III, the uh, King of Poland, who was a good, pious, devout Catholic and a pretty good ruler, I think, uh, could hardly use force against them. 
wasn't going to be possible. Uh, Sigismund hoped the Orthodox Church would die out because, again, remember at this point, the king has to give his approval for the consecration of bishops, and he's not going to give them to them. Uh, as you're going to see, this didn't happen. In fact, what happens is, and this gets us into more, we're talking about the, uh, the divide in Ukraine today. It gets us more around the stuff we want to talk about at the end. Uh, a war of polemics that began that would reshape the Orthodox world in the region and elsewhere. Because what's going to happen is Kiev is outside of, uh, of, of Polish territory. And so uh, thinkers from the view in the western part that were under Poland's control, they flee to Kiev. And um, the fact that the Kiev and Lavra is in Orthodox hands is really important because it's the wealthiest monastic institution in Ukraine, makes it a center for uh, Orthodoxy. And there will develop a strong, much stronger intellectual life in Kiev as a result of this. Uh, a printing press that was in Lviv, one um, of the Orthodox, was moved to Kiev. A brotherhood school there is opened, which will eventually turn into a Western-style college, the only one in Ukraine for the Orthodox. And so um, it begins, to, as we'll see in a moment, a, a renaissance of the Orthodox in Ukraine. The other thing that happens is the formation, briefly in the early part of the 17th century, of a state in Ukraine again. The Cossack state, the Hetman, the Hetmanate, I think is sometimes it's called. The Hetman's the leader of the, the Cossack peoples, which becomes a major power in Ukraine for a few decades. And in fact, it's to this Cossack state that the Orthodox actually owe their survival in Ukraine. Because I mentioned before, in 1596, um, the king of Poland was no longer willing to consecrate their bishops for them, have them be consecrated, so they didn't have any bishops. So in 1620, the Cossack leader convinced the Patriarch of Jerusalem to come to Ukraine and consecrate new bishops for the Orthodox. Uh, since Sigismund III would not recognize him as being legitimate, he moved to Kiev, even strengthening its influence even more. And so what happens is you have the opening up of effectively two Ukraines, really. Um, even though in 1632 Sigismund III dies and the new king of Poland comes to accommodation with the Orthodox um, uh, patriarch in Kiev uh, from that time on, you're going to have two different territories um, in what will be Ukraine because the western part is going to be influenced by Western culture, by Latin Rite Catholicism, well, both by, by Catholicism. And then the, the stuff east of that is going to be more influenced, is going to stay with Orthodoxy, first of all, but then also be uh, more influenced by Russia going forward. But in fact, one of the things about this is interesting here for assessing what's going on right now in Ukraine. The historian Sergei Ploky, I think I'm pronouncing his, his name the right way. I apologize if I am not. I am not a Slav. Um, there's a story who pointed out that the polemics that were fought between the, um, the Unionists and the non-Unionists uh, in, in uh, Ukraine uh, over the founding uh, uh, of, of the church in Kiev back in the 9th century made both the Ukrainian Catholics and the Orthodox more aware of their common identity as Ukrainians. They had a word for this, uh, a term for this, Navrod Ruski, the Ruthenian nation. In other words, the, the, the Union of Brest itself fostered this sense of Ukrainian nationhood. And in fact, it led to a renaissance in the Orthodox world. I should emphasize this. Under the new metropolitan of Kiev, um, Peter Mohila, the Orthodox began a process of responding to 
Western pressures coming from the Reformation and Counter-Reformation in terms of education and, you know, uh, theological um, discussion. In 1645, uh, an Orthodox catechism was published in Kiev called A Confession of the Orthodox Faith, which laid out, again, question-and-answer format, um, the basics of the Orthodox uh, faith, which was inspired by Catholic catechisms. Um, about seven years earlier, there'd been a catechism issued by the Patriarch of, uh, Patriarch of Constantinople, which had been, in turn, influenced by Protestant catechisms. Uh, and, in fact, um, one of the things Sergei Plocky points out is that you have not, you know, not one frontier with the West, you know, the, the Ukrainian Catholic Church as a sort of Western frontier, but two Western frontiers in the Orthodox world, because they're both influenced by the West. Peter Mohila's reforms will remain influential for well over a century, as would Kiev. Kiev will become, for a brief time, in a way it hadn't been since the 11th, since it was destroyed by the Mongols uh, in 1240. It will become a, uh, a, a uh, the center of orthodoxy in the Slavic world until it's surpassed by Moscow later on. Uh, and so you have almost two separate borderlands within a place which is in itself Ukraine the actual physical area today is a borderland in Europe um, and so yeah union with Rome for some but a division unfortunately for the church there so finally how do we want to assess the union well, let me talk about briefly the history of the, un- the union of Brest after um, after uh, 1596 Despite the support of the king, it did look for a time as if the union might not hold among um, those in communion with Rome, Ukrainian right Catholics. Again, they were a small group, even though most of the bishops had gone along with them. But by the 1620s, partly to do the efforts of, um, I'm going to butcher this poor man's name, St. Jehoshaphat Kunkevich, I think is how you pronounce it, Kunkevich. Um, he was, a uh, again, a, a, a Ukrainian Catholic uh, bishop who... Um, brought most of the Orthodox in Lithuania into communion with Rome and was martyred by an Orthodox mob in 1623. And his uh, efforts and his example of his martyrdom helped stabilize it. By the end of the century, uh, several more bishops would join uh, the Union. And in the 18th century, expanded today is what is to what is Belarus. At the same time, in 1646, and if you can, you have a, a picture of a map. I can show you this on, on YouTube. If you can't, you'll should have to find this. But... Um, the uh, Rome concluded the Union of Uzorod with um, Slavic peoples called the Rusin, who live in Carpathia, Ukraine, which is in the Carpathian Mountains, just at the very western tip of Ukraine. And um, and so this is another, and it's kind of confusing, but the Ukrainian Catholic Church has its own right, which is basically the same thing as this people, who became to be called the Ruthenian, Ruthenian Catholic Church. Yeah, I know, it's... It's complicated. Uh, But they both came into communion in the 17th century. However, in the uh, 1770s and 1790s, parts of Ukraine will come under control of Russia. And in 1830, in in the next several decades, the Russian government will basically suppress the union there, forcing bishops to come back into communion with Rome, with with Moscow, and essentially liquidating the... uh, the, uh, the the Union of Brest there. The western parts of the Ukraine, including Carpathia, Ukraine, um, uh, flourished because they were under the control of the Austro-Hungarian Empire until, after World War II, uh, the Soviet Union uh, took over those parts of, of uh, Ukraine 
And under Joseph Stalin in 1946 and 1947, liquidated first the Ukrainian Catholic Church and then the Ruthenians, the Carpathian Ruthenians in 1947. And uh, basically, both the Ukrainian Catholic Church had to become an underground church until it was revived in 1991, following the dissolution of the USSR. So, what are we to make of the Union of Brest? A couple of things. One thing to note about it is that, um, well, first of all, um, in making the Union, like this has been a criticism of modern historians, that this in some ways wasn't a true Union. It didn't include all the people. In fact, this is a, this is a legitimate criticism to make. Uh, the bishops made the same mistake that the people at, Flo at the Council of Florence made, and that they didn't do anything really to prepare their people for this, people on the ground, or consult them at all. So by the time they got back, and this was already a fait accompli, there was no way they were going to accept it. So this is this is a legitimate criticism to make, and unfortunately they didn't even bother to try. Um, certainly, um, these these bishops were motivated by wanting to save. Uh, they were motivated by you know losing people to the to to uh, pressures of you know Catholic and Protestant proselytism. Um, but they also wanted to save their heritage. Because it was under threat by those things, and this is again, I, I'm thinking of one historian in particular. But they sometimes it's claimed that this was not a real union; it was um, merely a union of individuals and bishops, and not a, a union of a church with, with uh, union of churches. I don't know. I guess you can say that. I think that's too critical. I think that's too much judging the union in light of post-Vatican II concerns. I think Rome and those bishops at least went into this thinking this was a union of churches and tried the best to do it. It didn't do a great job of it, especially the, the bishops that sought it out. And you can, again, you can kind of blame Rome a little bit because they, again, not maybe not Rome itself, but the Latin church, again, they, you know, they tended to see, they did allow them to have their rights, but if you read Magnus Dominus, if you look at some of the documents, it's pretty clear that this was an allowance they made they acted as if, okay, we're giving this as a sort of, you know, courtesy. It's not something that's due to you, which it should have been due to them. And I think today Rome does recognize that, by the way, that the, that these people, and in fact, later on, Rome would actually recognize the, the, the value that these things weren't dependent on, you know. And that's the thing about the, the authority of Rome. I am a Roman Catholic. I accept all of its claims. I don't agree with the Orthodox on the disputed questions. But sometimes bishops of Rome, definitely sometimes Catholics in general, act like something is true or good just because the Pope says so. And I think that's what they were acting like here in terms of the, you know, the reception of the, the, the Ukrainians, you know, as if, as if, you know, as if their right, you know, needed the Pope's sort of, you know, and yes, it, the, he wanted to make clear they accepted certain things like the filioque, but the rights themselves didn't need his imprimatur. They went back before the schism. They were old. They were, you know, derived from uh, that earlier period. There's nothing wrong with them in the first place. And certainly, I think it's a, a fairly look. I think it was a fair, you know. I think the those bishops were right to to want to preserve their heritage. There was definitely threats from the West. There were threats from, you know, the Ottoman Empire. So they had a lot of pressures on them. Uh, on them, and so I think they did what they thought they had to do even if, again, it did uh, have divisive uh, repercussions. 
And again, if you're if you're a Catholic listening to this, and I know most of my I think most people listen to this. <laughs> uh, we few, we happy few, we band of brothers who listen to this podcast. Yeah, I, I, you're probably a traditionalist, um, Latin Rite Catholic. I do want you to understand the Orthodox objections. The Orthodox hate this with every last fiber of their being. Uh, whereas, again, Catholics see this as, hey, they're coming back into union with the head of the church and all these good things. They see this as a divide and conquer tactic. Uh, and again, the fact that Latin proselytizing was going on kind of gives that a little bit of force to it. Which, again, I, I don't think is totally Rome's fault, but it's not as if... You know, from the Orthodox perspective, this all looks like so contradictory, right? On the one hand, yes, you can have your rights under threat of like being forced into the Latin right. It can look that way uh, from the outside, and you have to understand that. Uh, and what, again, it did cause divisions. Uh, Orthodox sometimes see Rome as collecting all these different, you know, Eastern rights, as if the only thing that unifies them is is not the faith they share, but only His will. In other words, it's almost like total submission to the Pope or something like this. I think this is overdone, but it's nothing but something you should totally dismiss because sometimes, sometimes Rome act like, acts like that, which can be a problem in practice. Uh, and one of the things about the Orthodox, I think, uh, they all have always put, I think, greater weight on the liturgy as a source of the faith than Latin Catholics do. Um, and so I think that's something as a difference of opinion you need to take seriously. As for Rome, I've already mentioned it. Again, I again I have some criticisms myself here. Obviously, I think there was too much emphasis on the universal authority of the Pope at the expense of everything else, um, to a certain degree. Um, again, they should have basically just said these rights are apostolic; they're good. Now that you've basically said that, and that is basically what they did in a way. Again, I don't want to be too hard. I think Rome did. I think Rome was perfectly sincere in what it was doing. Uh, if it doesn't match up to our modern conceptions, what we should, what the how you know ecumenical relations should go. And the Clement VIII was certainly sincere. You know, he was basically a decent fellow, from what I can tell. And more positively, I'll say this: Rome, for the most part, kept its word. If the deal was you submit to Rome's authority, it's your jurisdiction. You keep your church, you keep your rights, you keep your heritage and customs. They've done that mostly. Uh, they've generally been supportive of the Ukrainian Catholic Church. Uh, there have been some tensions uh, outside of Ukraine in, in diaspora territory over married clergy, which, by the way, um, the next series I'm going to go into, next uh, podcast series will be on Latinization of the Eastern Rites. So we'll talk about that eventually. Um, but for the most part, they had they kept their word. Uh, Benedict XIV, uh, Prosper, Prosper, uh, Pro, I think it's Prosper, Prospero Lambertini, uh, in the uh, 18th century, issued a bull or a encyclical called uh, Alate Sunt. I think it's not, not, anyway, it was a bull. It was a encyclical on the legitimacy of the Eastern rites. Uh, there, there was a discussion about in would be modern day Iraq. Um, you had some Chaldean Catholics who had their own rites, but were going to Latin masses instead. And he issued a a, a, a a, um, an encyclical which said no they should go to their own rights they have their own rights for a reason they should take they should stay with their own traditions you know popes from uh, Pius the ninth onward issued you know Leo the 13th Pius 11th 12th all issued encyclicals uh, directed toward Eastern Catholics they were supportive of their heritage generally speaking generally speaking uh, and more to the point here more to the point 
the people of the Ukrainian Catholic Church have been nothing but loyal and faithful to to Rome. And um, again, I, I had friends who were Ukrainian right, Catholics. They are some of the best, most faithful people that I know of. The best Christians, best followers of Christ that I know of. And in historical terms, the Ukrainian Catholic Church has suffered a lot. A lot. And uh, I admire, I pray for them. They are wonderful. And if you're a Latin Rite Catholic, you should learn more about them and support them too. And then finally, I mentioned there was some connection with the war in Ukraine. I'll come to this briefly, some things. Uh, I mentioned earlier that there was a schism in 2019 within the Orthodox world uh, between that sort of independent Orthodox Church and the Patriarchate of Moscow. And again, I won't go back into this too much, but um, this is something that this 2019 schism was, it's mostly an intra-Orthodox thing. Again, the Ukrainian Catholics didn't have anything to do with this. However, when the Ukrainian Orthodox elected their own patriarch, in defiance of Moscow, one of the first people to congratulate them was Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State for the United States. Why was the Secretary for the United States congratulating the Orthodox on one of their, in, their internecine squabbles? I have no idea. But I can tell you this, uh, Vladimir Putin's a paranoid kind of guy anyway. This made him really paranoid. Apparently, he thinks that the United States was behind that schism to some degree. Uh, and he has, and Vladimir Putin has a fairly... It's not just um, ideological view; it's almost delusional view of Ukrainian and Russian history. Um, if you what you've got from this podcast, take away is that there's a, definitely a Ukrainian people in a country well before it had a modern state. It only gets a modern state in the 20th century after the fall of the Soviet Union, but it's there. It has its own integrity, and uh, again, there's there's a lot, much more than I could cram into a single podcast. There's a lot going on there, but it's a very weaponized view of history it is that Putin has. But I say this because one of the things he saw in, I don't, I'm not sure, the United States, I don't put anything past the U.S. State Department or the Pentagon for doing stupid things. Um, but even if they didn't, you know, encourage that schism, they definitely were stupid to come out and sort of congratulate them for having it. Um, because it's it's something they should just stay out of. It's not your business. Um, except they want to push they want to push religious freedom, and they use this as a sort of the United States government does. I think in ways that you can understand why. Yes, the Russians are all paranoid. Their leaders, but they tend to see the West as doing what Rome did during the Union of Brest: divide and conquer. So what we see as oh, we're just inviting you to the party, right? Ah, oh, you come to Rome. They see as something. Right or wrongly, divisive, and intentionally so. Putin sees the same thing happening with NATO and the European Union. So that's why you have all the, some of this paranoia going on here. So there's definitely some connection there, even though, as I mentioned before, the Ukrainian Catholic Church is on good terms with all the Orthodox. And in fact, if you're paying attention to any of this, the Orthodox churches in Ukraine are basically united against this invasion. So... There you go. Vladimir Putin solved his schism problem by uniting them against him. So anyway, um, that is that is our episode on the uh, the Union of Brest. Please pray for the Ukrainian Catholic Church, for all the churches in Ukraine, for all the Catholics and Orthodox and Protestants, and whoever else in Ukraine, all the people of Ukraine and um, pray for an end of the war. And please, if you can donate, help out whatever way you can, the Ukrainian people. 
And again, if you want to go somewhere and, and donate some money to a humanitarian cause, it'll help all the people, not just Ukrainian Catholics. You can go to the Ukrainian Catholic Eparchy of Philadelphia, and you can donate money like I did. So for Controversies in Church History, this is Derek Taylor signing off. Hope you guys um, stay blessed, be good, grow in faith, hope, and love. And I uh, hope I hear from you guys soon. Soon. Uh, we have next series. So take care. God bless you all.